It's always a privilege to, to be with you. And um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt May. I'm uh, one of the pastors at North Cincinnati Community Church. And I always love being invited by Chad to come worship with y'all and, and to come open up God's Word and see what the Lord is teaching us. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans. We're we'll looking at Romans chapter 12. Probably a familiar passage for you, Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. <clears throat> And as you're turning there, I want to give us some context to where we find ourselves in this book. You see, the Apostle Paul is writing to these young Christians, this church in Rome, that's highly influenced by the culture around them. The temptation for them is to conform. See, this culture prizes conformity to the cultural norms. It's almost like this great big secular pressure cooker. Sound familiar? A lot like where we find ourselves today. And the temptation for these young Christians is to conform to that culture, to forget who they are, and to begin to believe that their identity is all wrapped up in political or national affiliation. And so Paul writes with urgency to remind them, no, no, your identity is primarily in Jesus Christ. You belong to him and your allegiance is to King Jesus and him and to him alone. With that in mind, let's turn our attention to God's word. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse one, says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, We pray that you would open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold wonderful truths from this portion of your scripture. And that Holy Spirit, you would be pleased to change us this day. O Lord, we need to hear from you. So we pray with your servant Samuel, speak, O Lord, for us, your servants are listening. And now, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Tim Keller has often referred to this passage as being the summary of the Christian life. He says that Romans 12 verses 1 through 2 were the summary of the Christian life because he realizes something. He realizes that here within these two short verses lies the key to understanding how we are to live as followers of Jesus in a broken world where we seek to submit to King Jesus. In fact, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sermons have been written just over these two verses because of their importance. And they're important for you and I this morning as well. Because if you're anything like me, 
and you have the tendency to be curved in on yourself, to forget who you are, but more importantly, whose you are, and fail to live how God's called you to live, we need to hear God's word to us this morning and to be reminded that our identity is in Christ and Christ alone. Paul knows that's our struggle. So he gives us this word this morning and tells us two things, two ways that should characterize our lives as the people of God. First and foremost, we are to be a people who respond to his grace and worship. And secondly, we are to be a people who resolve by his grace to change. A people who respond to his grace and worship and resolve by his grace to change. First and foremost, respond to his grace and worship. And we do that understanding that worship is motivated by gratitude. Look at me at verse one. Paul says this, I appeal or I exhort or I urge you. Paul's pleading with them, hey, listen to me, listen, pay attention and take to heart what I'm saying to you and apply it to your life. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Let me stop there. What are the mercies of God? Well, we get a hint from that word, therefore. Therefore points back to what Paul just said, but not just in chapter 11. In fact, the totality of all Paul has said in chapters one all the way through chapter 11, for there we find this glorious gospel unfolded for us where the mercies of God are on full display. Here's how. Chapter one, we see the theme of the book in verse 17. For in the gospel, A righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith. In fact, the righteous shall live by faith. We go on in the end of chapter one, we realize that the God who created all things created you and I to worship him and him alone. Yet verse 25 tells us that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we've worshiped and served created things instead of the creator who is forever to be praised. Which leads us to chapter two. We know that we're without excuse Our consciences condemn us. We rightly deserve God's just punishment from our sin. Hell remains on us. God's wrath remains on us, which leads us to chapter three. No one's exempt, none. No one is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're without hope. This is our situation, but God doesn't leave us there. He comes down. The end of chapter three shows us that through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that the righteous might be justified by faith. We might be justified by faith, but this isn't a new thing. Chapter four tells us salvation has always been, has always been by faith alone in Christ alone. We learn that from the men of faith himself, Abraham, who said he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, which leads us to chapter five where we see that those who have been justified by faith have peace with God. How? Through the sacrifice, the obedience of one man, the second Adam, many, you and I are made righteous, which leads us to chapter six, where we see that now not only has the penalty of sin been removed, but the power of sin has been dismantled. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're now slaves to righteousness where we're reminded in chapter seven that while we're in the flesh, we will always wrestle with sin. We will always struggle with sin so that we will we do what we shouldn't do and what we should do, we don't do. 
So we cry out with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of decay? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord, which leads us to chapter 8 where we see God's love for us is assured that there is no longer no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that he has given us the spirit of adoption which we cry out, Abba, Father, so that we know that in all things he works to the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So we see in chapters 9 through 11, Paul peels back the curtain And we see the cosmic view of this great salvation that we've experienced. That from eternity past, God has sovereignly chosen to set his affection on you and I and to lavish us with his love. And that the promise he has made, he will fulfill, that he will reconcile all things and all nations, including the Gentiles, you and I, to himself. To where the only response to this, the only response is the doxology in chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, where he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his past beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, who has ever given to him that he should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's abundant, unceasing, magnificent mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. He's saying, hey, this is to be your life. Your life is to be a thank offering to God. A thank offering to him because of what he's done, because of who he's made you to be, and because of what he's promised to do. So our worship is to be a thank offering to him. But secondly, it involves the whole person. Look with me again in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present or to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice. Paul's using temple terminology. See, these Christians would have known, they'd have had this vivid image seared in their mind of what the sacrifices of God looked like, especially in the Old Testament. They would have known that the Israelites would have brought their offering to God to be slaughtered, the blood spilled and sprinkled on the mercy seat, atoning for their sin. But they also would have known that there's no longer any need for sacrifices because of the one and final sacrifice. Jesus Christ, our Lamb of God, who absorbed God's wrath in its fullness, drank the cup down to its dregs, slammed it down, said it is finished. No more offering is necessary. He has entered in behind the curtain to a temple not made by man, but a heavenly temple once and for all. So what's Paul talking about? Why do we need to offer sacrifices to God? Well, there was a second sacrifice that was offered in the Old Testament. It was called a whole burnt offering. A whole burnt offering was brought as well. This usually was an expensive offering, very valuable. And they would bring it to the altar and they would not leave until the whole thing was burnt up. There was nothing left. It was all consumed. It was a Thanksgiving offering. What it communicated 
to the people of God was we're not holding back anything. All we have in response to your mercy is yours. It's yours. And he furthers this point by saying this in verse one again, to present your bodies, everything about me, not just my song, my mouth, my eyes, my ears, my heart, my hands, my feet, it's all his. It belongs to him, given to him in adoration and worship. Nothing is held back. Nothing. Do you realize that we're often, when it comes to worshiping God, we often give God our seconds, our leftovers? Eileen and I, my wife, we were meeting with, uh, we had a conversation with a good friend of ours. I got to lead this guy to Christ back in Augusta, Georgia, where I'm from, um, through a ministry called Campus Outreach. He came to Christ, and we're talking to him a few months ago, and he's planning this church in Washington, D.C., which is where he's from, African-American guy. Um, really excited about it. So we listened to him. We're really pumped. We're like, this is great. He's raising support, asked us to join his support team. And then afterwards, Eileen and I are talking, and we're like, we love what he's doing. We would love to be a part of seeing God's kingdom advance there, but we actually need to finish remodeling our kitchen and we need to make sure our bathrooms are taken care of, and on and on and on. And it seems silly, but in that moment, I was convicted. It's like, we often treat God that way in worship. God, I really want to give you all of me, but let me make sure I take care of everything else I need to take care of first. Let me get my stuff together before I bring it to you. But he said, no, no, all of me is given to you because it's all his. It's all his our time, our resources, our gifts, our influence are all to be stewarded for God's glory and the good of others. We are meant to leverage all of these things for the advancement of his kingdom. Total worship to him. And this sacrifice, he describes it in three ways here. He says it's living, it's holy, and it's acceptable to God. First, it's living. It's a living sacrifice. It means we are alive presently this day, day in and day out. We wake up saying, God, use me. Use me to make a name for yourself. As an instrument in your hand, it's living. Secondly, it's holy, meaning it's set apart from sin, but set apart unto God. We belong to him. We are not for ourselves, brothers and sisters. We are his and his alone. And lastly, acceptable to God, literally well-pleasing to God, meaning that because of the gospel, our aim has been redirected. No longer is our aim at pleasing ourselves. Now we seek to please him who died for us and was risen again. But let me say this. Here's the thing that makes our offering pleasing to God. It's not necessarily what we offer, but how we offer it, but more importantly, through whom we offer it. Jesus Christ makes our offering beautiful to God. Here's how. There's this example of, or this story of this world-renowned pianist. This world-renowned pianist. People from all around the world flew in to see him perform. They, they, they get there for the night that he's to perform. The audience is packed. The auditorium is, is overflowing. The, tur the curtain, the, the lights dim. The curtain comes up, and all of a sudden, guess what you see? There's the piano. 
But guess who's at the piano? It's a little boy. A little boy has stumbled onto the stage, and he's at the piano, and he's playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And everybody's appalled. They're like, who is this? Whose kid is that? Angry, outright, outraged. This isn't worth my time. I didn't come to see this. And then something amazing happens. This world-renowned pianist walks up behind him, but he doesn't chastise him. He says, keep playing. Keep playing. And he sits down beside him, and he plays the most wonderful, magnificent, beautiful piece of music ever heard to the point that at the end, everybody stands up and erupts and prays. Brothers and sisters, you and I are that little boy. That's our worship before our heavenly father. At best is twinkle, twinkle, little star. But Jesus doesn't chastise us. He says, keep going, keep playing, keep worshiping. He sits down beside us and he makes our worship beautiful so that the father looks up and he stands and says, that's amazing. That's my son. That's my daughter whom I'm well pleased with. Jesus Christ makes our worship beautiful to the Father. That's good news. That's good news. He goes on. He says, which is your spiritual worship, verse 1. It's your spiritual worship. Literally, it's your reasonable worship. As if to say, hey, it's irrational to do anything else. In view of God's abundant mercy to you in Christ Jesus, it is irrational to do anything other than giving yourself wholly to him. I'm yours, Lord. Make a name for yourself, Lord Jesus, through me. Which bears the question, if we're not offering ourselves, if we are holding back, if we're not living sold out to him, and perfectly, yes, but have we really understood the mercy of God and have we experienced the mercy of God in Christ? We are to respond to his mercy in worship. Secondly, we're to resolve by his grace to change. Resolve by his grace to change. Look at me, verse two. We do that by resisting the inclination to be conformed. He says this, do not be conformed to this world. He's saying, don't be squeezed into its mold. Don't follow the pattern of life of the world. That word, I lost it, there it goes, conformed. That word conformed in the Greek is in the passive present. It means this, that it passively happens to us, unknowingly, we don't know it. It's just happening to us. And it's happening presently to us. Meaning we are influenced more than we care to know or acknowledge by the culture around us. There are no neutral influences in our lives. You are shaped. Your soul is shaped by what you take in, by what you're consumed by, by what you're focused on. You're either swimming upstream against the current or you're pulling, being pulled downstream like everybody else we're being shaped 
by the things around us. Do you realize that? Are we aware of that? Are we on guard against that? Are the things you're taking in, the things you're watching, listening to, talking about, dreaming about, are they stirring your affections for King Jesus? Are they dulling your appetite for God? It's one or the other. There's no neutral influence. That's, that's, wow. You know, Paul actually could say this. He could say, do not be conformed to MSNBC or Fox News or social media or popular opinion, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Are you aware of how much you're being influenced? Do you realize how much you long for comfort? Do you realize how self-sufficient you tend to be? And how at the end of the day, it's about you. Where does that come from? Are we resisting this temptation to be conformed? How do we resist being conformed? He tells us, by seeking every opportunity to be transformed. He says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How do we not conform to the world around us? We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. That transform there is, be, is a command. And this can't happen apart from the Spirit of God and the Word of God. He says, transformed by the renewing of your mind. God uses His Word by His Spirit to change us. That means if we're not in front of this, if we're not taking this in, we're not being changed. In fact, this word transformed is only used one other time in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Paul says, and we all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed from one instance to the other. One aspect of glory to the other. He's saying that what you behold, you become like. What we take in, we actually reflect. That's how we were made. We were made to behold him in such a way that we reflect him in all we say and do. Paul's not talking about behavior modification. This is transformation from the inside out. This is what Chalmers Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a greater affection. The way we turn away from sin, these lesser loves, is to behold that which is greater, more magnificent, more beautiful. You become like that which you behold the most. Are we beholding King Jesus and his word? And this transformation doesn't happen overnight. It's a process that takes humility. Do you realize we need to, in order to change, we got to realize we need to change? That's hard. That means we need, to, we need to come before the Lord and say, Lord, change me. How can I grow? We don't like that. We think we have it together. We actually need the gospel we proclaim. You realize that? takes humility, but it also takes community. Remember, Paul's writing to a church, not to an individual. That means transformation can't take place apart from community. God made us to grow in community. Iron can't sharpen itself. Iron must sharpen iron. 
That means we cannot forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, we've got to prioritize Sunday morning worship. Don't give it up. You need it. We've got to prioritize small groups, being together, digging over God's word, begging him to bring us, to change us and make us more like his son. Continually positioning ourselves before the word so that the word of God might have its way with us. We need the word of God to shape us, not popular opinion. When I was in seminary, we had a, a Hebrew professor who would always enter into the class every time he'd say this. He'd say, Shalom, class. We'd say, Shalom, Jay. He'd say, Start with the Bible. And we'd respond by saying, And not the commentary. Start with the Bible and not the commentary. What was he doing? He wanted to drive it deep within us. Hey, before we go anywhere else, go to the Word of God. Let the Word of God speak for itself before we impose on it something it doesn't say, before we go to someone else and hear what they have to say. The same is true for you and I when it comes to our cultural climate and the circumstances we find ourselves in. He's saying the same thing to us. Start with the Bible, not popular opinion not your echo chamber, not your political affiliation. Our temptation is to start there and then to bring back to the word of God to impose on it something it's not saying, or if it is saying it, it's incomplete. Start with the Bible, brothers and sisters, not the commentary. We need to be renewed, our minds renewed. He goes on to say this, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. He's saying we can actually know the will of God. That God reveals his will to us in his word, which is hard for us, right? We all struggle with that. What's God's will for my life? What does God want me to do with my life? In this circumstance, with this job, in this season of life, no matter what happens in your life, things will change. Seasons will come and go. But God's will for you is always the same. He's made it clear in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. The will of God is this, your sanctification. No matter where you're at, what you're doing, and what role he's placed you in, it will always be that you might grow more and more into the likeness of King Jesus. I got a quote here by Paul Tripp, I think. Uh, yeah. He says this, he says, we forget that God's primary goal is not changing our situations, our relationships, so that we can be happy, but changing us through our situations and through our relationships that we can be holy. God is committed to making you and I holy, like his son. He says we can know his will. But he has this weird phrase here in verse two. He says, this, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect by testing. He's saying when we actually do God's will, when we put it into practice, we try it out, you know what happens? We show to the world that it really is good. His will is good. Good for you, good for me, good for this world. 
His will really is acceptable or pleasing. It's the best thing for you. And his will really is perfect. It's incredible. It's the, may, it's the way you were intended to live. He's saying when we live like this, when we live as living sacrifices with renewed minds, we display to an onlooking world that who our God is, what he is like, and what he cares for, and that he is good. And it brings glory to his name. This is how we were made to live. This is what is to characterize our lives as Christians, brothers and sisters. May God be so pleased to make us a people like this, a people who respond to his grace and ceaseless praise and resolve by his grace to change for the glory of God and the good of others. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Thank you that your gospel has come to us. That Christ, you have made a way for us to be made right with you. That you have come down. That we might know you. That we might be with you forever. And that you have given us your spirit. That we might, and given us your word, that we might understand it and actually put it into practice. God, I pray, make us a people who respond to your grace and worship and resolve by your grace to change. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.